You are listening to Let's Talk Trio on podcast. Keep up with the latest episodes by downloading the Podbean app or stream episodes via our social media accounts. Search for Let's Talk Trio on Facebook or Instagram. This episode is sponsored by Student Access. Student Access, the leader in Trio software. Student Access is an online database solution that allows Trio programs to track their students' information, connect with students by text messages, streamline the APR, and work from anywhere, all online, with automatic updates for changes from the Department of Education. Their technical support team includes former Trio staff and has over 50 years of combined experience working with Trio. Make it easier to focus on your priority, the students. For more information and to request a free demo, visit their website at www.studentaccess.com or call them toll-free at 1-800-801-1232. That website again is www.studentaccess.com or 1-800-801-1232. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on your social media by tapping that share button. This is a great way to support the podcast. Now here's your host, Juan Rivas. Thank you, Amelia, for that wonderful introduction. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Let's Talk Trio. I am your host, Juan Rivas. In this episode, we have Fabiola Mora, the director for the Academic Advancement Center at Colorado State University. Fabiola is on the program to talk about her journey of being part of the TRIO programs and to talk a little bit about her aspirations and her journey through uh, college as well. Being a first-generation student, Fabiola wants to share her experiences going through college. So coming up in just a bit, Fabiola Mora. If you would ever like to be featured on Let's Talk TRIO, please send us a message via Facebook or Instagram. You can find us on Let's Talk TRIO on the search bar on Facebook. The same for Instagram. Just search for us and send us a direct message. We'd like to thank our big sponsor for this segment of the episode, Student Access. One of the reasons that I wanted to sit down with Fabiola to discuss not just Trio, but her journey is a very unique one. And you'll you'll hear in her interview how much the Trio programs really resonated with her. Uh, One of the main inspirations was, uh, one, she is fairly new to the Trio realm. But she, she has already t- uh, proven to be a very effective leader and has taken on the reins to guide this TRIO program uh, to great heights. And her being a former, still a current colleague at Colorado State University, but uh, she also worked uh, closely with me, John, uh, and with Amelia um, most recently, is uh, she is a colleague through and through. She is very supportive and very encouraging. And I think having her on the podcast will really highlight uh, to our audience uh, why she became the director. So in a moment, you'll hear from Fabiola Mora. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode.
Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Let's Talk Trio. Today's guest is a graduate of the University of Northern Colorado. In 2009, she received a Bachelor of Arts in Spanish Education. In 2010, received a Master of Arts in Educational Leadership with an emphasis in Student Affairs. She has dedicated her career to working with historically underrepresented students, worked with the University of Northern Colorado in a position of with the Office of Financial Aid, was the Outreach Coordinator for the Cesar Chavez Cultural Center, was the graduate assistant for the Women's Resource Center, then jumped over to work for the Western Washington University as the Interim Ethnic Student Center Coordinator, and also served as the Academic Support Coordinator for Student Outreach Services and Ethnic Center, and then worked over at Metropolitan State University of Denver, worked as an Advising and Student Success Coordinator for the Learning Communities and First Year Success, was also the Assistant Director of Advising and Student Success, and now works at Colorado State University, previously held the position of Assistant Director for the Community for Excellence, or C4E, and is currently the Director for the Academic Advancement Center at Colorado State University. We are very fortunate to have her on the podcast, Fabiola Mora. Welcome. Thank you so much. I feel really special. I don't know that I've ever had an introduction like that. It's very <laughs> official. I, I feel very like you needed a grand very, entrance. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it felt very grand. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I, I'm just now like going into this format where I'm able to introduce guests with all their credentials because I feel like it adds weight to, you know, you being a trio um, mm-hmm. professional and it brings it brings a lot of uh, weight to that. Yeah, that's awesome. So as I did my research on you and your career, Fabiola, not to be a, a stalker or anything, but <laughs> I went over your LinkedIn I read that you enjoy time with your family and that you really enjoy traveling. Are there any specific Mm -hmm. spots that you've been to? Yeah, I really enjoy traveling to different places. I grew up undocumented, um, and so I didn't have lots of opportunities to travel when I was younger. Um, And I'm originally from Mexico. I was born in Chihuahua, Chihuahua, Mexico. And I... Now that I um, have my permanent residence, so I recently was able to, like a couple of years ago, go on a, to quite a few different places in Mexico. Went mm-hmm. to San Miguel de Allende, Mexico City, um, to visit uh, one of the beaches. Um, but I think for me, it's been really special to be able to travel around Mexico and to feel more connected to my familia, my comunidad. Um, to the place where I come from. Right on. Is Do you have a favorite memory of a location that you traveled with your family? Mm, I, I think when I think about growing up um, and the first time that I was able to go to Mexico, I think a lot about my dad's um, farm. So he has a farm right about 40 minutes outside of Chihuahua in a place called Orcasitas. And it just brings me a lot of joy to remember that place. Um, It's pretty isolated, but there's something really peaceful and calm about being out there. Um, there, The people in the community there, um, which isn't very big, are really connected like family. Um, My dad knows everyone, everyone knows him, and they know us. My dad has, you know, animals out there, so I I remember, you know, riding horses with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter, the first time we took her, you know, she loved it. So she would go out every morning with my dad to um, 
what is it when you milk the cows um, and just to get all of the things ready for the day. So it yeah. just has a lot of like special meaning in my life. Um, and it just is where all of my family gathers for special events is my dad's farm. And so there's just a lot of fun memory. That's amazing. That's awesome. Uh, I also noticed on here that mm -hmm. eating is also listed as a favorite. Uh, do you have any specific foods that you love? Oh my gosh, that's like such a hard question. Um, <laughs> I love food so much. Uh, of course, Mexican food, all the food, mm -hmm. um, tacos, mole, um, enchiladas, pozole, all of those. Um, but I also, and my partner is kind of bougie, and she knows that I'll call her bougie. Um, so uh, since we've been together, I've had the opportunity to like try all sorts of different foods. Mm -hmm. um, one of our most like recent favorites is in Denver um, called Safta, and it's Israeli food, um, but they have different hummuses, um, and the hummus there like is it will like melt in your mouth and every time we're in Denver we're like we should go get a snack at Safta <laughs> um but that's kind of one of our most recent ones. yeah I'm gonna mm -hmm. have to try it sometime do you have any recommendations for our audience uh in terms of Safta or just in general in in terms of in general if they ever find themselves in Fort Collins or if they're in mm -hmm. Denver or even Safta yeah yeah, I mean, I think we go mostly to Denver, um, so we like Safta. There's a new place that opened that's called Super Mega Bien, um, which is, um, they call it like uh, like Latin dim sum, is what oh. the owner calls it, but they, it's Latin foods um, that mm. come around in like carts, similar to how dim sum restaurants work. Um, it's a pretty fun place and also the food is really good. All right on. Uh, I know with this whole COVID-19 and kind of reminiscing with like being outside <laughs> and being able to travel to places, right? But how are you and your family holding up with this shelter in place order in Fort Collins? Um, well, we live in Longmont, but we also have a shelter in place with the whole state. Right? Oh yeah, but that's right, yeah. Um, How are things in Lebanon? Things are okay. I I think it's it's required us to shift our like daily lives for sure. Um, and I'm in this place right now where um, I feel like I hold the complexity of like feeling really privileged with my job and my role that mm -hmm. I get to work from home. Um, and yes, it's full of transitions and ups and downs, but also like um, the experiences of my family who don't have that privilege, right? That still have to go to work, that don't have medical insurance, that mm -hmm. are not being cared for in the same way as their employers. So it feels sometimes when I'm asked this, it feels like I shouldn't be complaining about my current circumstances because mm -hmm. I know that my family is um, having to navigate much harder things. Um, yeah. but, and that like for me, uh, it feels pretty isolating on um, this experience. I'm more of an introvert. I feel like I'm in the middle between introvert and extrovert, but this shelter it makes me feel really anxious. Um, mm -hmm. But overall, our family, our health, um, our, you know, everything that our basic needs are met. And so 
Um, we're just at this point trying to manage work, homeschooling our daughter, um, yeah. and just trying to survive day to day. Um, it feels really uncertain, um, mm -hmm. but overall we're doing really well. That's good to hear. I think like you, I'm, I consider myself very much an introvert and I've already become restless and I've been looking at a lot of live concerts on YouTube and I really can't wait to get back out, but um, yeah. So Fabiola, can you tell us from the very beginning, tell us about your origin story. How, how was life growing up? How, what were some of your influences? Things like that. Mm-hmm. Like I shared earlier, I was born in Chihuahua, Chihuahua, Mexico, and my parents came to Colorado, to Fort Lipton, Colorado, um, when I was three years old. I don't remember much about crossing the border, but other than what my mom has shared, uh, growing up, we would go back and forth to Mexico a lot, and there was uh, never an issue around crossing the border until I was a little bit older. Um, and then it started getting harder and harder to go back and forth. Um, and so I, a lot of the way that I grew up was like feeling like torn right between Mexico and here and figuring out like where I belonged. Um, I think there are a lot of folks um, who have done research around um, the borderlands and feeling like you don't belong like in Mexico because when you travel there, you're not Mexican enough, but here, you're not American enough. Um, Selena, the Selena movie, that's like a quote. Um, I was about her. to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so much of my childhood was like growing up, it felt like in two different worlds. Um, that also translated to my educational journey. I felt like mm -hmm. I was living a life at home with my family who um, very much valued education, but didn't necessarily understand like how to support me through it. Um, then being in school where um, people didn't know that I was undocumented, um, people didn't know like what my family was going through and like having to, you know, like help my family understand like why I wanted to play sports and why I wanted, like why I had to stay after school for student council. Um, so I always felt like I was navigating like a, a couple of different spaces. Um, mm -hmm. And really, like, when I think about my education, my family was the driver for me and, like, wanting to continue doing well in school. Mm. Both of my parents um, sacrificed everything to come to the U.S. and uh, still to this day work really hard jobs. And so I always, like, have them with me when I think about my own very much doing not for myself but for my community as well um yeah. and that you know that like continuing into high school um when I I've always done really well I was really good in school I was very active um and I always wanted to go to college um but in high school you know when you um some students, you know, you have these rite of passage moments, like getting your first job, um, going to get a driver's license, all of those yeah. things. When those times began to come up, that is like the first time that we had conversations around us. Something that we like talked about growing up, it was in high school what, that I 
understood more about what that meant, but it hadn't occurred to me that that would prevent me from going to college. And so I remember going to um, college visits with my counselors and my teachers and getting really excited about going to college and then just learning one day that I needed to have papeles documents, right, to Mm -hmm. go to college. Um, And if I didn't, what that meant, right? Um, At the time when I was going to school, there weren't laws like there are now around in-state tuition and some financial aid. At that time, I would have had to apply as an international student and no, with no financial aid options, education just wasn't going to be something that was attainable for me. In my uh, last year, nearing my last year of high school, uh, my parents' um, immigration process was coming to an end and we were able to get our permanent residency. Uh, And that opened up so many opportunities for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think a lot about um, the privilege that I had getting that because my cousins, I have a lot of cousins, we were all in high school together and my immediate family were the first kind of group to get our residency right. So my cousins didn't have opportunities to go to college um, to pursue other things. And so I have seen that the impact of citizenship has on like your future and your livelihood. Um, even when I look back now and where we are all at. Um, But when I got that, I only applied to UNC. Um, It was, you know, the due dates were all approved. Um, My parents at that time had divorced and I had moved to live in Greeley with my mom and I was going to Northridge High School. Um, And so I knew that I needed to stay at home. I needed to help my mom. Um, and wanted to live at home. And so I applied to UNC. Mm-hmm. And I remembered um, getting to getting my admissions uh, information and then like a financial aid award letter and just thinking, okay, I got in, but there's no way I can afford this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I walked myself to the financial aid office. I have no idea why I did this, um, but there was like something inside of me. And I think um, for a lot of like first gen students, um, this is just something that exists in us. But I went to the financial aid office and I just said, they're like, how can we help you? And I just didn't know. I said, I don't know. I want to come to school here, but I don't know anything. And luckily the for me, the person at the front desk was the assistant director of the financial aid office at UNC at the time. Her name is Amy Rogers, and mm-hmm. we're still connected. But she took me back to her office and looked at all of my information And I left that day with a full ride scholarship to UNC. Oh, wow. Uh, I was, I qualified for the Governor's Opportunity Scholarship. um, Amazing. And it paid for everything for five years. And then I also left with my first job um, in financial aid. (laughs) So I was a work-study student in financial aid. Um, And so that's kind of, when I think about growing up, um, where I came from, and the educational influences of my family and my high school p- experience, they have that has all played a critical role in getting to me to me yeah. to where I'm at right now. 
So really, family played a decision for you to attend college in the first place. Yes. So what was your personal reason? Why did you want to go to college? Um, I mean, I think that's like a hard question because I think that within uh, my cultura, right, the Latino, Latinx culture, it is very collective. So it feels hard to say I. Um, it is. It feels like uh, like this is a collective decision, right, that I'm not doing this just for me. Um, when I think about that question, I think about, for me, my reason was my family. Um, it was like, yes, something that they supported, but I wanted to give back to them in ways that they had given back to me also. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about what was it like being a first-generation student uh, and your journey through college? Yeah, I, um, I didn't, I, until like much later, I didn't know what it meant to be first generation student. Uh, and when I think about, when I look back at my own experience, it was really um, having to navigate a complex system uh, on my own or without without knowing that there were people and resources and support on campus um, that could help me. So I, you know, I, the academic uh, rigor of college is just very different from high school. Um, I don't think it's um, one way or another. I just think it's different. And so having to figure out, you know, how do I even talk to my faculty members? How do I ask for help? How do I meet other students? Um, how, how do I fill out my FAFSA, my um, insurance information? How do I sign up for classes? It was very much uh, like having to figure things out. Um, and it, it felt my first semester was pretty hard. Um, there were multiple times where I felt really alone. Um, and also I wasn't living on campus and so I didn't, um, I would go to class, go to work, and like go home. And so the community piece wasn't there for me until I had met um, someone in my math class who was part of the Cesar Chavez culture um, and invited me to come to the center. Uh, mm -hmm. When I got to the center, I felt like home. Um, I felt like, wow, there are people that are first-generation students who look like me, who share my culture, my language, who are sharing similar experiences of being first in their families to do this. Um, there was um, the director of the center now, she was there at the time um, also, um, and her name is Trish Escobar. And she would, she would just, she just greeted me like, hola mija, you know, like just very like family like yeah belong here um and that is what I was searching for my first semester is like a place where I felt like I belonged and a community that understood my challenges um, and that could mm -hmm. help and support me as a first-gen student yeah that's amazing and to have that community and being supported on campus that that must have felt amazing yes it did yeah, there are several paths you could have taken. And I, when I look at your educational career and your educational path, you chose mm -hmm. education. Why mm -hmm. is that? 
Oh, that's such a funny question because when I started in in my own college journey, I was actually a science major. Really? Yeah, I loved, I still love science. I loved chemistry. Specifically, I was like in AP chemistry. Um, I loved doing all the extra like science stuff in my high school. It was just where I thrived. Um, So when I started at UNC, I was actually a chemistry major. And I remember uh, getting a C in my first college chemistry class and feeling like a total failure. Um, Oh, no. Feeling like. You know, I, I did really well in high school and I got pretty much A's and B's. And so I had never gotten a C. And um, I didn't have an advisor who told me it was okay. You know, that a C in college chemistry was not a reason to not pursue this and um, to kind of give up. And so when I think about uh, like academic advising, which has been a lot of my career, um, I really for me um advising plays a huge role in how students move through and like achieve their own personal academic goals Mm -hmm. and so i wish that i would have had an advisor at the time who kind of believed in me and my goals um but i also know that things happen for a reason (laughs) so i changed my major after that to business um and I think like many of the um, students that I have worked with over the years, business, science, you know, um, engineering are majors that make money. And for me, that was also something, a reason um, is like, I want to help support my family. So I thought business, okay, it's not science, but I could get a good job with business. Um, So I went to the, um, I became a business major for a couple of years, actually. Mm-hmm. And just was not doing well. And um, I share this story with students when they are like really struggling because I pretty much failed out of the business school. Um, but before they could kick me out, I quit. Yeah, in my last like probation, you know, um, semester, I knew I wasn't going to get it. Um, I decided to change my major to education. <laughs> um, so... I kind of landed in education after trying a couple of different things. And I also share that with students because I think that sometimes there's this pressure for students to um, decide on a major and something that they're going to do for the rest of their lives. And I really see education as a process and a journey to find our path, right? So chemistry, even though I still love science to this Mm -hmm. day, um business was not so much for me but i am pretty good at math um i think i landed where i needed to be in education so i um first declared my major well in secondary um spanish education Mm -hmm. um, because i thought i wanted to be a spanish teacher and after i did my um spanish teaching like practicum my last year i decided i do not want to work with high school students and a huge shout out to high school teachers because that's hard um but at the time i was already working at unc as a graduate well as a student in the cesar chavez cultural center and so Mm -hmm. i had a mentor who talked to me about higher education and student affairs um 
And I didn't even know that that was something you could study. And after that conversation, I decided to pursue higher education. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So then what shaped your motivation to work with underrepresented students? What what shaped that? Mm-hmm. I think it's really deeply tied to my own background. Um, I think about the spaces that were really critical to my success in college, right? Like the cultural centers, the women's resource center, um, where, and I feel like those, my, my own identities and those communities really drive um, why I do the work that I do. Um, I know that um, these spaces exist on many campuses and I want to help students um, make sure that they feel like they belong, that they're seen, that they're heard, um, that at, mostly, at, you know, we all of the institutions I've worked in um, at have been predominantly white institutions um, and these spaces are pretty limited. Um, and I really want to push for more spaces like these and also to work towards like systemic change and policy change um, so that our students can have better experiences on college campuses and don't always have to fight to exist um, on our mm-hmm. campuses. And um, I think a lot of it is just really informed by my own experience um, as a student and just like my commitment to my communities. Yeah. So you being in education really sounds like you are there to shake things up and make make sure that policies and changes within the university system are there to benefit students. Yes, that's my ultimate goal. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. We need more. We need more people like you uh, in universities. <laughs> so, um, can you tell us a little bit of whether or not Trio played a role in any part of your journey? Yeah. Um, Trio did not play a role in my journey because I was undocumented, um, which I think is one of the shortcomings of it being a federally funded program is Mm -hmm. that we cannot serve students who are undocumented. So because I was undocumented, I didn't um, participate in any like pre-collegiate Trio programs. And then when I got Mm -hmm. to UNC, I didn't. I didn't know then at that time that I qualified. Right there, there is a trio program at UNC that that is still there and was yeah. there when I was a student. But because I wasn't part of those programs growing, that was an option for me yeah. um, when I went to college. So unfortunately, can you repeat that? Uh, the last minute, I think that you what you were talking about is uh, trio programs uh, are not able to serve undocumented students. And then that's where it kind of cut off. Yeah, so because TRIO programs are unable to serve undocumented students because they're federally funded and their citizenship requirements tied to eligibility, uh, I did not benefit from TRIO programs. Um, and when I was in college um, and did have a citizenship status, I didn't know that that was an option for me. So unfortunately, I didn't participate in the TRIO program at UNC. Okay. So for you, then going after UNC, uh, how, where did you start your career? You said you started in financial aid. Can you, can you give us a timeline of how all that happened? Yeah, so I actually moved to Washington State. And... Um, um, 
I worked at a private for-profit college in financial aid. Um, I moved to uh, Oak Harbor, Washington, which is an island. Uh, and it is very far from any, like, there's only one community college on the island. And then it's pretty, like, an hour or an hour and a half from, like, other educational institutions. So I took a job with this um, organization, which was not my favorite because coming from a public institution and um, having to navigate, like, the dissonance of for-profit institutions so I didn't last there very long. Um, uh -huh. I, I lasted there probably about eight months. Um, but during that time, I was applying for other roles. Um, and I got my, like, dream job um, after that, which was working in the Ethnic Student Center and Student Outreach Services at Western Washington um, University. Um, Student Outreach Services, or SOS, is similar to TRIO programs in that it works with first-gen, low-income, and students of color. Um, and my position was split between that office and the Ethnic Student Center, so I got to work with, with, with um, students of color who needed academic support. Um, so I was split between those two offices during my time at Western Washington University. Wow. Mm -hmm. All right. And then from there, you transition to other positions. Can you talk us talk us through uh, some of? Them? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to also just say that my time at Western, I absolutely loved. I uh, I think when I think about um, that place and those students, um, because I was so far away from my family and my community, like the people that I worked with and. The with um, became like family and so that place is really really special it helped me develop as a professional it helped me um, it pushed me because the students on that campus were very active um, the activism from students on that campus is incredible um, and they really pushed me to be a better advocate for them um, and I like special connections to that place um, and so yeah. Although I really loved the place, it was also very lonely to be far away from family. So I mm. um, came back to Colorado um, and worked at MSU Denver. Um, and um, what the other thing I want to say is that for me, like I had grown up in the cultural centers and working in multicultural affairs and my job at Western was in that. A lot of folks tell me, um, don't get pigeonholed in multicultural affairs. Like, make sure that you get other experience. But I, um, mm -hmm. I think that that's really sad because we don't often do that to other higher education professionals. And I think it also devalues the work of multicultural centers um, and the really important place that they like work and place that they have on our campuses. Um, but unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I, not unfortunately, I think both, um, I internalized a lot of those messages. So when I was looking for jobs in Colorado, I was looking for jobs outside of that, um, and came to MSU Denver to work with their first year programs in the learning communities, overseeing, um, coordinating, advising, um, and their different learning communities. And that was a very different role than what I had ever had. Um, uh -huh. this 
student population at Metro is much more diverse than any institution I've been at. Um, so the students that I got to work with were um, lots of students of color, first gen students. Um, MSU Denver was the leading institution to pass the asset bill for undocumented students. So there are undocumented students. So just um, non-traditional learners since it's a, a commuter campus. Um, trends. So I had um, a, a very diverse group of students that I was working with, but the work itself um, was, wasn't what I was used to. Um, and I had a really great supervisor who helped me um, stay connected to multicultural work. And so uh, allowed me to like create new programs focused on different student populations, do identity-based work. Um, and then I got promoted within that office to serve as an assistant director. So oh, I, wow. um, yeah. yeah, it was really awesome. My um, supervisor, I think, advocated a lot for me. Um, and so I was able to, uh, move into the assistant director role and work more with faculty um, on the development of the learning communities and then oversee mm -hmm. the like peer mentor program for the first year students um, and those students at that time I supervised 20 student ambassadors um, and they just brought so much joy to my life um, and I'm still connected with many of them um, many of who have now entered the field as student affairs professionals um, which is kind of neat to see students that you work with now um, be part of the field as well right on, uh, yeah. and then after that I um, I decided you know, like this is great work. I love advising and um, all the work that I'm doing at Metro, but I now miss multicultural affairs. Uh, and I realized that by leaving it, it helped me find a passion of like, this is where I belong within higher mm -hmm. education. So I started looking for jobs that were focused on like diverse student populations, which is um, how I ended up at CSU with the Community for Excellence. Um, when I first started, my um, job was um, in the unit that was the Opportunity Scholars Program, which mm -hmm. merged with E, um, overseeing the First Generation Award. Um, and uh, I loved everything about that program. And as C for E grew, I also had lots of opportunities to work with different student um, groups, as well as like different scholarships um, and programs across campus. Um, and I think that there is where, like, I, I was like, I every position I feel like has pushed me to grow, um, mm -hmm. and in that position I grew a lot around um, budget, like, like administrator work that mm -hmm. I had never done, um, and realized that I really enjoyed. Um, and my previous supervisor, Tina Saka. Um, was the one that really encouraged me to continue thinking about my own growth and looking for mm -hmm. other opportunities beyond C free. Yeah, that's amazing. And then you ended up being the director for Academic Advancement Center. Yes. So being being fairly being fairly new to Trio, did you expect mm -hmm. any transitional challenges as you moved over as director? Yeah, I think that for me, um, because I had never worked in like um, SOS was, uh, at Western was a trio program. Um, it was mm -hmm. defunded many years ago before I got there. Um, so 
that was like an experience that I had in terms of serving first-gen students and most every position that I have held entailed serving first-gen students um, but the the piece where I expected transition um, challenges were the trio regulations and the legislation so I had never been part of a first-gen program that has such strict um, regulations um, for students and um, issue you know managing compliance and budgets with federal grants had only been working with institutionally funded programs that serve underrepresented students, which are not held by the same constraints as federal grants. And mm -hmm. so I knew that I was going to have to learn a lot about TRIO legislation. Um, I had also um, written grants in the past. Um, and when I, we actually just finished our TRIO SSS grant writing. Um, I can say that this has been um, one of the hardest grant writing um, experiences of my career uh, and I oh, have wow. learned a lot yeah. um, and so I don't know that I expected that because I have written other grant writing experience for me yeah okay and now that you've you you already know about TRIO and you know what it's about uh, mm -hmm. what are some challenges facing your TRIO students in your program specifically mm-hmm um, I think that, I don't know that this is like specific to our students, but when I think about TRIO, the students that we serve, I, um, I feel like they're, um, throughout our educational experiences, we are kind of taught the ways that um, we don't belong in, in, in education. And so when um, every year at our new student orientation, um, like throughout the summer and our welcome, I try to really help students feel like they belong. Um, that they are, we use this model called community cultural wealth, which acknowledges um, the assets that all of our students are bringing. Because oftentimes when we talk about TRIO students or um, other like identities that TRIO serves, um, it's always it's most often framed in deficits um and th that's really easy for us to internalize um mm -hmm, and yeah. the community cultural wealth model allows us to talk about all the assets that our students are bringing and that actually it's an asset to our institution that these students are on campus right um and so right. when i think about their challenges i really think about the way that um they have been taught um, that they are a deficit um, in our system and um, helping them shift or reframe or just acknowledge or reaffirm, affirm that um, they have, um, you know, when I think about familial capital, that they have the, the support of their families, their communities, um, that they know how to navigate systems. They have been navigating really complex educational systems and other systems their entire lives. Um, that they have all of these things that they're carrying with them that can be assets here um, to their educational journey. So I see them often um, not too sure of themselves, which I think is mm -hmm. a challenge, not necessarily of them, but of our system that we do this to students. Um, and I think that um, there's like a shift from um, gap, like uh, student success gaps, right, to opportunity gaps because mm -hmm. it puts a responsibility on us. As an institution, 
we need to figure out how to better support our students and mm -hmm. not expect them to um, and not just not just see them as a challenge or as a deficit um, but really um, figuring out how do we change ourselves and our systems to recognize all of the strengths that they do bring um, because otherwise I feel like we are failing our students um, mm -hmm. so I think about the way that trio um, programs are structured and I feel like um, that there are ways that um, trio programs reinforce deficits mm -hmm. are ways that they reinforce asset-based approaches um, and so for our staff um, for the AAC um, I think we try to challenge our own selves to um, address like the way that we are looking at students as challenges or deficits um, and even in that like our students do have real struggles and I think they have to do with um, our inability to change our systems to meet them where they're at. Mm -hmm. Going off of that, the community cultural wealth model that you spoke of earlier uh, and changing the question then, so what are some strengths that these students bring to the table? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, um, like I shared, I, I think cultural capital um, is really important. I think that they are bringing uh, experiences that don't exist on our campuses that are really valuable and I think when we think about institutions who value diversity equity and inclusion I think that these students like have all of those things and that they um, it's something that's just part of who they are um, when I I think navigational capital in that model talks about students abilities to navigate systems and when I think about for Gen system uh, students, right? They have navigated our complex um, admissions process, our complex financial aid process, our mm -hmm. registration processes. They already yeah. know how to navigate this. They have navigational skills. We just have to figure out how to tie, how to help them connect with those and apply them in higher education. Um, other pieces are like uh, language capital. Um, and that's mm -hmm. not just referring to like knowing multiple language, but students' ability to um, like code switch is something that we hear often, right? That they are yeah. able to kind of um, navigate different uh, languages um, mm -hmm. within an institution. Now, I feel like uh, kind of torn about that because I don't necessarily feel like students should have to code switch to exist in our spaces, mm -hmm. um, but they do have the ability to um, communicate in all sorts of ways. Um, I think also about resistance capital, um, and that is talking about the way that they um, engage in activism and um, resist against, you know, oppression. And their entire existence is pushing against the ways that education has um, oppress them and so them even being on our campuses and sharing their stories and um, bringing kind of their knowledge and their um, experience is a way that they are resisting oppression um, and they do this in all sorts of ways our first gen students do not give up um, they have faced countless barriers and obstacles to their education and they are here despite of those, are in spite of those. And um, I, when I see them, I just think like, 
that they are just so amazing. Um, <clears throat> and I wish that, that our institutions would see them in those same ways. Absolutely, yeah. So I'm going to flip the question a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask you, what are you learning from the students that you're currently serving? Mm -hmm. um, oh, I learn so much from them all the time. Um, I, I think that there are, you know, we use words like grit and resilience and perseverance um, as things that students need to develop. When I think about TRIO students and the students that I work with, these are already things that they have, um, that they have been cultivated since they were, before they got to our institutions. Um, and so they teach me a lot about um, persevering and um, continuing to push the system to do better. Um, and they push me to do better. I, um, I remember after the last election, um, and I called my mom pretty upset because of like my own family and being undocumented and also um, just knowing that the impact that that was going to have on the student populations that I work with. And my mom um, was just like, you know, I get charle gana. So it's like this Spanish saying of you, you just like keep right um that no matter what the circumstances are no matter how hard there are um that we just have to keep going and I, I continue to be reminded of like pushing forward and perseverance and resiliency from students um and it just like it fuels me in a way to like never give up um and I also see a lot of hope um students teach me a lot about hope I think that um, sometimes as professionals in higher education, it can be really frustrating to continue trying to push for change and um, the system just works really slow to change. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, just remain hopeful. Like I, I serve undocumented students um, through the institutionally funded program in the AAC. And after, um, you know, all the decisions around DACA and other decisions around undocumented students are made, um, we check in with our students and every single time they were just like, you know, we got to keep going and we got to hope for something better. And it is just a reminder and a lesson to me around, you know, if our students can continue doing this, like there is no reason why I should not be able to. Absolutely. So a question that might sound repetitive or a question that you might have already heard from me, but what is it that motivates you to, that draws you back to this work? What keeps bringing you back? Mm -hmm. I think, oh, I just, all of it, the, the students, um, my family, the, just like I am not going to give up um like I sometimes like yes I need to step back and breathe and um kind of take care of my own self but I mm -hmm. like have that resistance capital that I talked about because of my own family that I mm -hmm. am not going to stop fighting to make higher education better for students so when I wake up in the morning like I absolutely love what I do um the students that I get to talk to um I know that the 
decisions and the spaces that I'm privileged to be at as an administrator, that my voice matters in those spaces because oftentimes, like, I am the youngest. I am, like, one of few people of color. I am, like, typically the only queer Latina at the table. And so there aren't, there needs to be more of us at those tables. And I feel like a deep sense of responsibility that if I am the only one that I am going to be a strong advocate for the populations that I serve. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, thinking and reflecting about your career and your education, is there anyone in particular that influenced your work to uh, that you really want to give credit to that you've come this far? Yeah, I, um, one of my mentors who passed away a few years ago that I met at Western Washington University. Her name is Doctora Elena Pereira. I feel like she has had a tremendous impact on my work and the was like she started her education when she was 40 years old and she went straight through her bachelor's, her master's and her PhD. And, and in 10 years. That is amazing. And she was um, from California, from Boyle Heights. And when I met her, she was like, I can't even, she was just like down. Like she was like a chola. And <laughs> she was just like, whatever you need, like I got your back. Um, oh. And she was fearless. Like I saw her in meetings and pushing and not giving up. And I saw her like love for the work and for the students, like students love Dr. P. Um, and she also taught me, so not only did she teach me about like the work, um, I think she, she definitely had a huge impact on my life. Um, she taught me a lot about um, protecting my energy and my health. Um, she was really intentional about the people that she let close to her. Um, and she would always tell me, like, you need to really think about life because people either bring you energy or take your energy. And that's not something yeah. that you can, like, really get back. Um, so she taught me about, like, quality of relationships um, in ways that I had never thought before. Um, and so in my, like, own life today, like, I... I'm really thoughtful about like who I let into my life um, mm -hmm. in those like very personal ways um, and also like trying to work on better balance with my health and my energy because I definitely can get give so much to my work and forget. Um, she was just yeah. a beautiful human being overall. Um, she yeah. was very spiritual. She was Buddhist. Um, and so she just had this way, this energy about her that, um, like, you knew you couldn't mess with her, but also, mm -hmm. like, very peaceful and calm, yeah. you know? And we're, we are very extremely honored uh, that you've shared your story with us so far and to let us into your life a little bit to uh, spotlight you as a professional, as a trio professional. So we, we're extremely honored and humbled that you've allowed us mm -hmm. to come into your life a little bit. Thank you. This has been really special. Uh, so we're about to wrap up the podcast. Uh, you've championed first-generation students. You have stood up for low-income students, and you continue uh, sticking up for students with disabilities. 
What has been the most rewarding aspect of your time with Trio? Um, all these like most rewarding or favorite questions are hard because <laughs> I feel like there's just so much. Um, so loaded. So I feel like for sure the students. I um, as I have continued to advance in my roles within higher education, there is like a greater disconnect between me and students. Right. So when I first started out as a professional and why many folks enter the field is because of students but the more you move into administrator roles the less and less contact you have directly with students um so i think about like always maintaining a caseload of students um i've always had that um so that i can stay really connected because i feel like that for me is like one of the most rewarding um and what's really special about trio and like places like the aac is that we get to meet students from the time they arrive at an institution and see their growth all the way through graduation which is so special um and to like be by time is not something that a lot of people get to do um so that for sure is something that's really rewarding and then in terms of like um outside of students i feel like um it's been really awesome to be part of the trio community um to go to trio spaces and just feel like you belong um, and people are so welcoming. Um, I can tell you that I have had, like, since I started this role, there have been, like, countless of folks who have reached out to provide, like, support, to cheer me on, um, to just say, like, whatever you need, like, let me know, um, to provide training for me. Marilyn Thayer, this director came, came out of retirement to help me. Paul Thayer also, Andrea Reeve. I mean, these are all folks who are like trio legends. Like all of them have provided so much support. So I think about trio and I think about um, just the community that exists. Um, and that is really rewarding to know that you have people that are in this work with you and that you're not alone. Absolutely amazing. Any advice mm -hmm. to upcoming professionals in the trio world? Oh, this one's hard, but, um, and I'm trying to do better about it, but I, um, I think in higher education, um, and specifically when you like enter the field, um, you get socialized to think that you have to prove yourself and that you have to work, um, outrageous amounts of hours to kind of show people that you are worth something. Um, and I think that can be really um, unhealthy mm -hmm. and I think that we need to help new professionals um, feel like they are they belong and that they are worthy regardless of um, if they can work you know 60 to 80 hours a week I just I remember the messages that I got and um, I had a lot of health issues because of my inability to manage work and life and all the things and so when I think about advice I really think about um, doing your job right and also taking care of yourself and that is much much harder to do mm -hmm. in workplace but um, I think for trio in general we are underpaid and overworked and I think that we need to be able to take care of our staff and encourage them to um, not overwork and mm -hmm. to um, know that the work is going to be there every time, every day, and that students like will 
you know, will appreciate anything that you're able to do always. And that there have to be like some kind of boundaries, which I know that can be hard. Yeah. Um, but we have to be good role models for students also in that way. Um, so I just, I think I wish that when I was a new professional that someone had told me working and that you're taking care of yourself um, and finding balance. Absolutely. Wow. Well, Fabiola, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us about you, your journey, your family, and the Academic Advancement Center. We really appreciate you. Uh, and again, we're honored to have been part of your life, even just for a little bit, uh, to have been let in. So we, we, we do appreciate that. Uh, we hope to have you on the podcast soon. Again. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really, the work that you do is really amazing. So um, we appreciate I you. Thank you. love you highlighting all of the trio things. I appreciate that. Thank you. And the team appreciates it, I'm sure. So thank you very much, Fabiola, uh, for being on the podcast. Thank you. Are you a participant, alum, or staff of a TRIO program? Do you want your program highlighted? You or your program could be featured in an upcoming episode of Let's Talk Trio. Get a hold of us by going to our Facebook page or Instagram and send us a direct message. Search for Let's Talk Trio. We want to get your story to the public. What a wonderful interview with Fabiola Mora, the director for the Academic Advancement Center at Colorado State University. What I really enjoyed about Fabiola's interview is how open and how uh, very thorough she was about her history and her journey. Uh, we really got to delve into parts that, um, you know, it's, it's an honor to be a part of. When someone is able to open up and talk about uh, their experiences, you're, you're really able to tell that story in full and we've just i can speak for me and the podcast team we feel super honored to have been part of fabiola's story uh, to hear it and to hear her experiences so fabiola thank you for being on the podcast again if you'd ever like to be featured on let's talk trio please send us a message via facebook or instagram uh, we are taking interviews for current students staff alum and we also can do a profile on your program if you want to have you and staff members with you to discuss your program and have a full episode just dedicated to the great things that you're doing at your institution. We'd love to have you on the podcast. Please reach out to us and let us know your availability. I'd like to thank the podcast team, Amelia Castaneda, our producer and marketing manager. John Russell, our audio engineer and tech specialist. Myself, Juan Rivas, the executive producer and host. Honorary members of Let's Talk Trio include Tony Ho, Scott Kendall, and Roderick Chambers. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.